0: Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, I am joined by Rue Map. Rue is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro. She is a community leader. She's a grassroots organizer, and you know most of all, and how I think of her is a mentor and a friend. Rue is one of the most erudite, savvy, powerful women that I've ever met, and. It's kind of interesting to be in her orbit and to get to watch her and absorb, you know, skills and knowledge through her example, but also to be able to talk to her and have these really deep, meaningful conversations and experience her willingness to share her knowledge and her experience and kind of help steer you and give you some direction. You know, as, as some of us kind of come into this outdoor space Uh, Start dealing with bigger players, corporate entities, and the like. So uh, I got to be on a hunt with Rue a few weeks back. We recorded this interview. I'll go more into detail about what we were doing there and uh, some more of Rue's accolades. But I'm excited for you guys to get to listen to her and for us to have this really frank conversation. It talks a little bit about her history, what she's bringing to the outdoor industry and the hunting space, and I just really, really love and like and appreciate this person. So please enjoy this episode with Rue Map. So I am sitting at the Grizzly Ranch in Sassoon, California, kind of west of Sacramento, a ways. I get a little bit like halfway between San Francisco and Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here with Rue Map, who is the orchestrator of an event I've been at this weekend called the Black Heritage Hunt in partnership with uh, Cal Waterfowl. Uh, Basically, uh, it's been a really, really rad hunt where there's this amazing facility that Cal Waterfowl owns. I guess previously it was owned by the owner of the Oakland A's. So it's kind of like this... Rich guy uh, paradise that was kind of frozen in time at, I don't know, 1981. And so it's, I love the personality of the place. The clubhouse is this big mushroom-shaped tower in the middle of this huge, expansive marsh, and it's wrapped in windows. You can walk around outside on this veranda. Really, really impressive place. Tons of personality, and being that I'm from Arkansas, kind of mind-blowing that people have access to a place like this, but... Ruth, thank you so much for having me out. I, was, it was, I met you last year, and then you invited me out to this deal, and it was, I mean, it was fun as hell.
1: Oh, well, I'm just so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me in this conversation. Um, you know, we've been having a lot of conversations this weekend, and so it's great to end the weekend, you know, to just look back over the last couple of days and, and maybe pick up on where some of our last conversations left off.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Quick introduction. Rue is the are you the CEO, the president, founder, founder of Outdoor Afro, which. Rue, you've done this a million times. <laughs> Why don't you just throw it down?
1: Well, Outdoor Afro um, started as a blog on my heart in 2009, and I grew it um, bit by bit to be a national not-for-profit organization, and it is all about celebrating and inspiring black leadership and connections in the outdoors. And the way we do it is through a leadership team that we train. We have now in this year's class over 100 men and women who are residing in 33 states. And we have a participation network of nearly 60,000 people who get out and hike and bike and camp and just do all kinds of things in the outdoors that Black people have always done, but maybe there was some kind of disconnection in your life with your family. And so we tell you how to do things, show you where to do, where to go, um, the gear you need, and, and really help to empower people so that people can have that sense of outdoor leadership and agency restored back into their own homes and into their own families. So it has really been powerful journey for me because outdoor afro didn't just start off as some entrepreneurial um, idea it was really about celebrating my parents and how they always had their arms open wide to people Um, we had a ranch ourselves about 70 miles east of here and that was a place of, of of pure hospitality of where it was where you know I learned about hunting and fishing but we also had a swimming pool and a tennis court and so we had like all this outdoor recreation at our fingertips and I got to see the importance of sharing it with others and helping other other people feel welcomed and the awe that people could experience no matter how old they were and so outdoor afro is like an expansion of what I grew up with and my parents are no longer living and so it's the living tribute to them and who they were.
0: Uh and we've talked about this a little bit before but aren't your did your dad come from Texas?
1: Mhm. Yeah, so my dad was from Texas. Mom from Louisiana. They were, you know, so it's I'm like a that
0: Beyonce song.
1: Right, right. <laughs> um and I'm the I'm a first generation Californian, mm-hmm. so I am heavily influenced by my upbringing um, by the South and from the food to, um, you know, sitting at the feet of elders, the way that we, you know, show respect, um, uh, very deeply uh, religious, going to church on Sundays, Sunday dinner. Um, so, so much of who my parents were and what they put in me is actually very Southern And so um, and my parents are much older than most of my friends' parents. And so I kind of have always had this and been teased to have kind of a country way about me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's it's something that I I just I I treasure and I love and and I love I love it when I go to the south because there's a recognition of of who I am in those places. That's, you know, very different than what I might experience here in the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Yeah. So you grew up. You know, we're talking like Bay Area. This is a strange juxtaposition, but it's actually one that makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, for hundreds of years, most of the black people in this country were in the South, you know, living in the country in these rural areas, this agrarian connection to land. And then, you know, it's really been like the last hundred years where there's kind of this expulsion or expansion of black people, you know, fleeing violence and looking for better work opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so like what I've seen is that most of the black folks on the West Coast that I've encountered, they're like one or two generations out of three places, which is Arkansas, Louisiana, or Texas. That's right. And that's because that's where the railroads went.
1: Yep, and this is where it stopped.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then the people from the other side of the South, they went straight up. and I've talked about this on the podcast before. That's right. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, Bay Area, we're talking like, what E40 and mm-hmm. like too short, yeah, yeah, uh, like kind of raw hip hop, too, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> but that weird juxtaposition, like you're talking about, you're and probably, activism, yeah, Berkeley, yeah, you know, the W. Kwamu Qu- Bells of the world,
1: uh, Huey Newton,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: so the, that is
0: that's the Panthers came out of there, didn't mm-hmm. they?
1: Yeah, and his. His parents were a part of the Great Migration. So in the, in the Great Migration, people often um, bookended around the wars. And that was a, it was a huge swell of people coming because they had the shipyard work. Um, those, you know, great, greatly available um, for black men and black women. Um, but the actual migration period went all the way through the early 70s. And so um I'm sure you're familiar with Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns and I, mm. I I I turned to that book as soon as it came out because it was something I felt I could find and get I guess confirmation on about the motivation for why people migrated
0: mm-hmm. cuz
1: migration sounds like a it sounds like a choice you know you know, like you, um, there, like there's some agency about it that's detached from a motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and and that book really helped me to understand that people were like leaving in the cover of night, okay? They were leaving the cover of night because, you know, there was terror, there was, um, you know, financial pressure, um, all kinds of things.
0: Yeah, I mean, refugees in, in many ways, like, Absolutely, their own country.
1: Absolutely. And I think we should call it that, you know, and not, you know, have this like great migration, you know, like it was some kind of pilgrimage because people were not necessarily coming to a place that they knew they, they came here to start all over. And so what I find in California, especially, and I think that that spirit remains, there's something about the way that, this state is in the whole landscape is informed by seismic activity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's why we have, you know, these incredible, um, mountain ranges and we've got the central Valley, which we're, you know, presently, um, sitting at the edge of here, um, in Sassoon. Um, and then we have, you know, these, you know, jagged coastal edges and shorelines.
0: Is this agricultural? (laughs) Where we're at now, is that what mostly yes. the industry?
1: Yes, it's agricultural. Um and it could have easily have been developed, you know, like so much of the agricultural lands um that surround this area. Um, but it was preserved. It was preserved and its watershed and and, and and tidal marsh um, you know, have been preserved and but in any case I think that there's something because of this this movement that is California, you know it 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 gives easy birth to you know people who think they can strike it rich get famous you know be someone else yeah. um uh so there's something about the landscape that also um informs like how people show up in the state
0: that's that's an interesting take on it uh you know what i've kind of realized this is slightly off topic but you know i've spent most of my time in the last decade in Arkansas and I realized that this is the first time I've ever been in California and I realized that I have absolute kind of predispositions towards California, especially Mm -hmm. because like where I live, I think California is used as this example of the antithesis, right? Um, And not even necessarily by people that I, uh, you know, value, whose opinion I value or that I like or respect, it's just kind of, yeah. you know, that whole, or that shorthand, like Hollywood or uh-huh. whatever. And of course, California is really, really long and really, really big and incredibly varied. Yes. You're talking about, you know, especially when we're talking about like, uh, how the environment informs the people and what they do and how they consider the world. There's a lot of variance in that in California. It's not just Southern California where media is mm-hmm. rooted at. Uh, Or tech, yeah. It's 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 really been kind of like a fascinating little snapshot of the place, and it's it's interesting that there is a, you know, it's interesting that there's such a deep rooted hunting culture here. You know, I think most people wouldn't think about the fact and. I believe the statistic is correct, is that California kills more ducks than anywhere in the country. Now, per capita, I think that hunters to non-hunters is much lower than where I live. But as far as there's so many people and there's so much rural land and there's so much access that, you know, there's a lot of hunting that happens here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you just described has been illustrated through my own experiences, like traveling out of California to go hunting,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there was a time, you know, I would say maybe a decade or so ago, maybe even longer, when if you said that you were from California, people would light up. You know, there's just something. There was something exciting about being from California. It was shiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that shine has dimmed, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and I could speculate as to why, but um, it's been really, it's been, it's a been a fascinating journey to be a hunter, to go outside of California and, and and practice hunting where people are often surprised that I hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I've talked about it my whole, you know, career you know, with outdoor afro about my family background, but it's only been truly in the last few years that I've dug in and gotten-
0: Actively act- participated.
1: Reborn, as I like to did say. Did you
0: grow, I mean, did you grow, this sounds so crude, but did you grow up killing stuff?
1: Um, little stuff like quail, squirrel. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was it. No small game hunting, but you grew up small game hunting. Yeah, that was me. But my dad, he would take down deer and it was so heartwarming to have posted about my hunting. And there was a family friend who responded and said, Oh, it's great to see you're keeping up the tradition Mm. in your family. And I was like, Say more about that, you know, because I didn't know what his connection was specifically. And he said, Yeah, your dad um, took me and got me on my first deer and helped me break it down. And I was like, Wow, like I didn't, you know, know that. Uh, or didn't I may have, I mean, I knew he was hunting, but I didn't know that he was acting in a mentor role mm-hmm. uh, for other people in the community in that way. And we also had domestic animals. So there was killing of domestic animals and processing of those domestic animals. And I had a bigger hand in that because things were fairly divided, uh, you know, along gender lines. So the guys went out and hunted, mm-hmm. you know, and the women processed it. So I was definitely involved with a lot of processing, canning, shelling. I just remember sitting at the table. We'd go even here. So we had two houses, but one ranch. And then we had a house in Oakland. And my parents would still, you know, drive to the Central Valley and go to these u pick farms and pick peas Mm -hmm. all all day. (laughs) And I remember I was so little, you know, that I lost my tennis shoe in the the pea patch and uh, came home with one shoe.
0: Um, When you say peas, do you mean like?
1: Black eyed peas. Okay. Yeah. And then I just remember like, just sitting at the kitchen table for what felt like hours like shelling peas Mm -hmm. and I remember getting really good at it but I just remember like oh damn of course you know I wish I I long for days like that you know long to create times when you can just sit around a table and and you know peel things and put them away in a sealable bag and you know and and be able to enjoy them uh, later so yeah so my my family you know really maximized um even if we weren't at our ranch um the areas that surrounded where we live to um get fresh things to eat
0: what did I'm interested in, so your mom's from Louisiana what part
1: d Ritter, which is probably closest to let's see i think it's Lake Charles might okay. be um so it's on, more on the southwestern side and then he um more on the eastern side of texas a little town um near
0: beaumont okay and i've got this image in my mind that i've created of your father but like what was he doing in texas how old were they when they came over here and how did they i mean you're saying you had like multiple homes and a ranch i mean so it sounds like they were
1: Doing pretty well. Yeah, they're successful. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, there are people in our family who still like wonder how my, you know, family did what they did. And my dad was a hands on the land, hands on the tools guy. And he, you know, by having children later in life, had an economic advantage over most of his siblings Mm. um and her siblings because they were you know people were you know having children you know one after the other you know from the time they were married you know up until they couldn't anymore and through you know um some you know, health challenges today, we'd call them, call it infertility. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't able to, you know, and so they got up at age and were able to stack their money. But the way that he was able to do it and let me, and let me just set the table even further. My dad had, he had a sixth grade education.
0: But what year he, was he born?
1: He was born in 1914.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he, but he was a carpenter. He was mm-hmm. skilled. The skilled tradesman, and he actually um, went on and completed his education later in life and got a teaching credential. and He was um, assisting at the trade school at the local community college um, where he retired from. But he was a builder, and so the ranch really was like a little shack on 14 acres. He built, you know, out a house, a modest ranch house. He built the swimming pool. He built the barn, the shop, you know, all the things that that we came to enjoy. And yeah, you know, and he built the smokehouse, you know. So when we go and you know kill things, you know, he was real big on smoking things. And so he he built my first bed. <laughs> um, so he he was uh, he was a man's man. I mean, I, there's no like better way to describe him. You know, he had his chair that he laid on, you know, at the law, at the end of his long days, he got up oftentimes before the sun came up. Um, he was always tinkering, tinkering with things, um, building things. And he ended up, um, just making some really smart decisions around real estate, mm-hmm. buying land and building on them. And at their peak, he had built, uh three apartment houses and these apartment houses had like you know six to eight units you know they weren't you know huge they were tucked away in in neighborhoods and in multi-use um neighborhoods not necessarily the greatest parts of town but not like the slums either just working class people working class people and so i grew up you know like running up the stairs to collect the rent. <laughs> I mean, and so I, I was, I was a part of, you know, the economy of the household. I knew where the money came from. And, um, and then my mom, um, she was a seamstress. And so she would um, make the money that she wanted to make by making clothes for other people. And most of the people who were her customers were people from the church. And they were both fairly active, my mom more so, um, in the Church of God in Christ. And, you know, every year they have the annual convocation. So, you know,
0: she had... I don't know anything. I've never even heard of that denomination before.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a Church of God in Christ or Kojic. Um, and, in, you know, that's also a whole other part of what shaped me also. Um, because, you know being a part of the church community for her, that was her social network, you know? And so we were there and it it was one of, and it remains to this day, I believe, not just the Church of God in Christ, but church in general remains a place where black women can have status Mm -hmm. in a way that is, you know, um, celebrated and respected. So for instance, you know, the pastor's wife is the first lady. Um, you know, women, you know, get to be, they get to go up in rank and be missionaries. Um, they get to be ushers. And let me tell you something, those ushers are like, it's like white gloves, with the white gloves, the uniform.
0: Yeah. hats, and some, and like the little some, like pill some, hats.
1: Yeah. Some I, I don't remember the hats, but I do remember, you know, they wore a badge
0: that said yeah. usher.
1: Okay. And there was lace and... You know, just a bit of, you know, it, it was importance. You know, you're were you were basically kind of the sergeant at arms. You if know, had a
0: uniform, it sounds like
1: you and you had a uniform and you you kept order. If somebody was chewing gum in the church, usher uh, would come over and put her hand out with a napkin, spit it out. Or if someone if a woman got too happy, filled with the Holy Spirit and fell on the floor, usher uh, would come with a sheet and throw it on her legs so that she wouldn't inadvertently Keep her yeah she would inadvertently you know expose herself i mean so there was just that kind of like decorum and um celebration also of what i believe is also blackness and africanness you know where s- someone can sing a song or play the tambourine in a certain way and the holy spirit just sweeps over the whole congregation and whatever the program was it doesn't matter like there was, and I used to, of course, hate it when I was a kid because I knew it meant we'd be in church all day, but like people would get so happy and so joy filled that, you know, the, the pastor would be like, we're going to throw the program out the window.
0: <laughs> Is this like, do you like go to church on Wednesday and then go to like at night and then you go to church being got Bible study and then you go on Sunday?
1: Yeah. So I would say on the spectrum of like, You know, strict attendance um, versus kind of loose attendance. I'd say our family was somewhere in the middle. I have cousins who never missed church and had to go to church multiple days a week, including Sunday. I um, had Sunday um, was a day of obligation throughout my childhood. And then we also would go on tuesdays for what was called bible band and it was just you know mainly prayer and meditation and the pastor would come up and say a word and um and i remember those evenings fondly because you know i'd be in there always like with a book or notepad you know i'd be doing different things um because you know these are these are adults talking you know so and then we'd stop you know often late and and as a treat i'd get a a bag of Funyuns and a strawberry crush and just <laughs> that would make it all worth it for me. Um, but we were definitely like not. And then once I got to be in my teen years, you know, there was no making me go to church um, after that. I was trying to, you know, have as much time to myself as possible. Um, and but I will say that, you know, those are those are experiences that greatly influenced me in particular. So I I can't sing, and um, and I, I'm 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 a passable dancer. Okay, now I'm, at my age, I most of my dancing's in my facial expressions. Um, Just kind of grown folks. <laughs> it's guessing. all mm, it's yeah, all yeah. you know squinting and contorting my mouth, and you know that's funny. Um, yeah. No, so I know exactly. So it's all on the face about. now. But in any case, um, but the thing I could do, I could talk, and so when it was time to read anything if someone wanted something read at church and they wanted it read really well done like at the easter on the easter program or someone's obituary and even to this day i get the call and that was something that trained me to be a public speaker um, from a very young age um, and and feel confident in doing it and you know i come from a kind of a family where whatever your talent is, it's going to be put on blast. And that's if if you can sing or if you can cook or if you can, whatever you can do, people are going to keep coming to the well and you will get better at it. And that's kind of how it went um, with my family. And I'm, I'm grateful that they put me up in front of the church and I'd be petrified at seven years old. But, you know, it prepared me for um, a career that, you know, involves quite a bit of public speaking.
0: So let me... Let me actually segue off of that. Uh, actually, no, I want to ask you one question. Sure. And then I want to move into a little bit more of like some of the activities we participated in this weekend mm-hmm. and uh, ask you some questions about kind of this juxtaposition of maybe how you present and how what you do. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, what did your parents' hands look like?
1: My dad's my dad had the hands of a man who um, worked them. Um, they were big. He was tall. He was six foot four, um, very muscular, um, lean until he you know got older and got a little belly. Um, he, but his hands I remember were just so big, and hands that worked and and i and i just what comes to mind is a hammer like i i just i just have a a very vivid memory of him having a hammer often um my my mom's hands not so much um weathered um definitely weathered but not not hardened like his were his his hands were hardened
0: Yeah. The reason I'm asking this is because both of the descriptions you gave of your parents and what they did, Mm -hmm. like your mother being a seamstress, right? And you're talking about your father being a carpenter. Mm -hmm. These are both very, in different ways, very physical, tactile jobs, right? Very Mm -hmm. hand-oriented. And there's, it's like, I bet you can't, I, I imagine that a seamstress is going to, you know, develop maybe, maybe in just a couple specific places, but like some very astute calluses, uh, you know, some resiliency with that needle. Yeah. Uh, I remember.
1: Yep. 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 Yes.
0: And then you have with carpentry, you know, you're, and I'm thinking about like my grandfather's hands, there's this just kind of overall hardness that develops mm-hmm. like the fingertips kind of round out and blunt, you know, mm-hmm. from like just weathering and hitting mm-hmm. and callousing, And it's, uh, I've, I was thinking about it cause I'm like sitting here while you're talking, I'm looking at your hands, mm-hmm. you know, and you have uh, you know, you're a put together lady, right? So it's, but I understand the relationship to it. Right. And the fact that you have, uh you you have a a relationship with like an intimate relationship with people whose hands were uh, were influenced by the physical work they did Mm -hmm. right which is Mm -hmm. even though and i talked about it like we talked about it last night you know you're you're very much in a corporate world but you have that relationship with like physical capability. And so I didn't even tell you what this podcast is about. This podcast is about people who have found an intersection of thoughtfulness and, uh, thinking through things and like having a tactile relationship with physical activity mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. getting their hands dirty. Right. Yep. So yeah, I just, that was kind of just out of nowhere, but I've been sitting here for like 15 minutes looking at your hands and you're like, you know, manicured nails and uh like when you were hunting the other day I told you like you're the I've never seen anybody wear lipstick and go hunting you know but yeah but so what's interesting to me is that you've you've kind of uh, had a reactivation let's say in the last five years or so in hunting and you're kind of bebopping all over the place you know you're bird hunting you're waterfowl hunting here and you uh you were just doing some upland stuff and you're antelope hunting and uh you'd say killed a whitetail, right? Yep. Yeah, whitetail hunting. And so I I'd be interested to know how doing that stuff is kind of informing your corporate work. You know, your you know, how how is that that tactile business that you're in, how is that informing like kind of what you're doing for for a living in this organization that you've built out?
1: Yeah. That's a great question because I, I sometimes forget how um, much of a multi hyphenate I am Mm -hmm. and how it presents and, and can be disruptive in how, in the way that it lands on individuals or circumstances I find myself Mm in. But the truth is, is because my family did so well financially, I was able to live in a affluent neighborhood. Went to school with affluent children. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to three elementary schools. Okay, so there was no be bobbing, you know, between houses, and lived in the same house from you know a baby until I was eighteen. And that kind of stability, as well as access to high quality education, had me in two worlds, kind of from the rip.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, where, you know, we're speaking one way at home, but another way at school. Yeah. And I I remember getting reprimanded by the teacher because I pronounced something in the way that it was said at my house. And she's like, what do you mean? It's not this, it's that. And so I I got corrected from a young age and kind of felt like I was bilingual and able to translate across, you know, the very Southern family that I was living in and with and uh, was from, um to whatever the experiences were that I had and it was tough because you know again my parents were so much older than most people's parents that you know um you know they just they weren't maybe as energetic and cool sure. you know and and you know would you know they weren't really um interested you know in, in doing some of the things that my friend's parents were doing like Jack and Jill and the Lynx and all these other kind of things um, What's,
0: I don't know what either one of those are
1: yeah so these are just not just but incredibly important organizations for black people who had means to find networks for their children to um, develop in so um, Jack and Jill um, is a it's a mom's group And it's been around, you know, for nearly a century. Um, And, you know, there's other organizations like it, sororal and fraternal organizations. Okay. You know, we can just, you know, kind of have a general grouping. And I mean, no disrespect um, by, um, you know, speaking on these organizations with any kind of um, poor description. But in general, my my folks were just not um, interested in joining you know, they weren't interested in like shopping where you know the white people shop. They wanted to shop in the hood. They wanted to go to Food King where they could go and find the foods that they knew they could find, whether it be you know cracklin' or um, you know meat to season your your greens. I mean that they 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 went.
0: You know what it's, I mean, you know exactly what it sounds like is an immigrant community, yeah, it sounds like first generation immigrants who have kind of a cloistered community. They've built a little place that reminds them of where they came from, yep, and their children become ambassadors to kind of the rest of the world. that's
1: exactly it, yeah,
0: yeah. T- I mean, you're talking about language, you're talking about food, yep yeah that's really interesting yeah
1: so so that's the experience i had growing up and so what you see in me is really what i feel a a, a course correction to be all the parts of who i am yeah. and not and not you know because to be and you just you, you describe it as corporate you know it's it's a lot of it's a lot of leaving things at the door You know, it's a lot of leaving parts of who you are, you know, someplace where you don't have to talk about it or you don't, you don't want to talk about it or, or, you know, that the company that you're keeping is not interested in it or worse would ridicule you for it. And that, that's one reason why I get so much energy from doing the work that I do is because it allows me to be fully expressed. And I've never done anything in my life, and I've had, I've had corporate jobs, um, pretty much since I was in my, you know, early twenties, all the way through my mid thirties, and and I benefited greatly from those experiences, and I was able to make a good living from those experiences, but I always knew there was something else I was supposed to do, and when outdoor Afro. began as a blog it just quickly became my navigational north like I knew there was some it was almost like a spiritual or generational like tug like this is this is what you got to do and I was so happy to do it and just as broke (laughs) like no there was no money getting Mm. made on outdoor afro it was this idea but I remember when I would tell people about it. And I would tell people about it like waiting in line at a at a book signing. Yeah, I do outdoor Afro and this is what it's all about. I didn't have a team. I didn't have anybody. It was just me, like this, you know, evangelist for this idea of where black people in nature meet. And I remember when I would tell people what I did, there was something that would light up. And I think. It was a reflection of how I was lit up, you know, and there was a woman and I was taking a class and I told her I had started Outdoor Afro and she looked at me. She's like, it's going to be big, you know, and I mean, I can't say that I knew she was right, but are you good?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. There's some little weird noise in the background. I'm trying to tweak stuff.
1: Okay. Well, let me know if you want me to know.
0: No, no, it's it's like, this, it's a little tiny thing. I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize. I must have been making some weird face going like, what's going on?
1: No, I just thought maybe we we're like off or something. No,
0: no. Just keep on.
1: Yeah. This woman, she's like, it's, you know, out, she, when I told her about it and like, again, there was not a thing. Outdoor Africa was not a thing. It was just a blog. It was an idea. It was inspiration. She's like, it's going to be big. And I was like, you know, hoping so. But I knew that that's what I needed to do. And I started getting other bits of inspiration. You know, um, I remember going to a restaurant in San Francisco called Farmer Brown's. And I went into that restaurant and it's a soul food restaurant. And this is, you know, before everything became so like artisanal and, you know, it's, it's, food trucky, you know, um, trendy. Mm -hmm. But they were really on the cutting edge of like, you know, saying this is soul food. We're going to celebrate it. And there was art and there was like just great dishes and furniture that kind of, you know, felt very Southern to me. And, And they were, you know, serving the drinks out of mason jars and, you know, things that are now like are very like Instagrammable. But at the time in 2009, you know, I just felt like they were onto something that felt like fully, full expression, you know, um, of the artfulness and the nourishment of being black in America. And so I, um, I remember writing, um, in my journal at the time I was like, you know, being there is, you know, it not only inspires me, you know, to have, you know, eaten there, but it, it, it's, it's, there's something about that place that's telling me what I need to be doing next. So it was just all this fertile ground at that time. Um, this yearning in myself, um, to be doing, some, I was at a crossroads in my own life, which I won't really get into around career and, you know, raising three kids on my own after a divorce. And, you know, it's kind of one of those, well, what do you have to lose moments? You yeah, know? Yeah. cause, cause, Everything you'd been doing up to this point hadn't worked to plan. You know, you thought you know going down this path was going to give you this outcome. Well, guess what? I didn't get. I didn't have the things that I I, I thought I was going to have. And um, and so I went back to school, finished up a, a degree that I had long neglected, and you know, sat before me. What sat before me was you know this kind of like crossroads moment. And that's, you know, when Outdoor Afro was started as a blog. And it was really, I mean, and blogs were at the time like people's, you know, digital journals. And I had been writing about nature all my whole life. Like I had diaries, you know, um, with locks on them um, where I'd come back from the Girl Scout camp, and write about every excruciating detail about, you know, human interactions, and the wildlife we saw, and the activities that we did. And so I loved writing, not so much to, like, express myself, but it was a way for me to revisit those places again, and those experiences again. It was almost like, you know, for me, like, Writing in my journal, especially about my outdoor experiences, was like was like a, a, taking a picture, you know, and looking through a photo album. So, you know, so the blog is basically that diary grown up. And um, so I, I just um, I lost my train of thought. What are we talking about? We're talking about something else. You have no me well. Actually, else. let
0: me ask you a question. Okay. Let me maybe we can steer it this way. Because so outdoor Afro, I mean, you've got people that are leading trips, you know, like biking and nature walks and canoe trips and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff that I would probably uh, classify as like outdoor recreation, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And so even though I am definitely recreating when I'm hunting, me personally, I don't, uh, like, I don't usually boat. Unless I'm trying to go like set a trap line or I'm trying to go get fish <laughs> right, or find right, ducks, right? Right. Uh I don't go on hikes, I you know, hump it down in hollers trying to find critters, right? So uh and that said, you know, that's me. I think there's value in people. Everyone's not gonna be, you know, Brown, Daniel Boone or whatever. I'm not I'm not comparing myself <laughs> but to No,
1: Boone. no, you're 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 teasing them something that,
0: that um Well I wanna I wanna <laughs> know about Let's talk about this this hunt that we've been on this weekend because, I mean, look, we've got a lot of things that might on the surface, just in a snapshot, seem, uh, seem like there would be a lack of uh, continuity between them, right? So we're in California, black people hunting, right? Also, like uh, my buddy Patrick said, it's probably 50% women, mm-hmm. right? Yep. If not more women than men. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of a, it was a lot of things that you might at first glance think don't go together. And this is all orchestrated by you. So I would, I'd be interested in knowing what the impetus for this was and uh, and and why, why you have incorporated, you know, something that really is, like an inherently violent act, an inherently visceral act, an inherently you know, participatory act uh into your life in 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 such uh intimate way.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, as I said earlier, you know, outdoor afro allowed me to be all the parts of who I am, but there was one more part that needed wanted i believe visibility in in my life and in in practice and that that was my dad and i never felt that more strongly than when i killed my first turkey and i was walking down the hill these beautiful lush uh rolling woodlands uh, in Sonoma County hosted by Hunters of color. This was Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Okay? And um and he had Carlos with me, um one of his fa- one of the founders and Holly was with me. And um we each got all our turkeys like within 20 minutes. It was unbelievable.
0: Yeah, they're thick over there as I understand.
1: Well, I'd never, you know, shot turkeys before, so consider me spoiled. But <laughs> I um out like bounding down the hill, just bopping down the hill with this Jake like slung over my shoulder, and I just felt like awash with my father's approval and um so you know the these activities are yes violent um and yes, you know, complex they're extractive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Um, just about an hour ago, before we came down to do this this podcast, um, one of the participants was talking about uh, a nature area that had just reopened. And she's like, yeah, and they're offering nature walks now. And I remember I looked at her and I said, I don't nature walk, I hunt. Yeah, yeah. It's- <laughs> And it was, it was meant to be, you know, kind of cheeky because of sure. the weekend we we're in. But I actually thought about that and wondered how I could ever go back personally, right, to only walking through a place and not noticing something I could kill. Like, I don't know if I, I can go back because if... If I'm walking on a trail at a marsh and it's all ducky, I'll think about killing those ducks <laughs> and I don't yeah. and that's 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 a different experience than someone who is you know walking along and go, "Oh wow, beautiful sunset, um you know, look at this you know pickleweed or you know, I mean it's, it's
0: well one person is is an observer and one person is a participant, and you've you've become a participant in this stuff yeah and it's you know what I appreciate you saying this because uh, as I've referenced before, right? you have like a manicure, you have a nice ring, you have mm-hmm. uh you know you have long hair, you have lipstick, you've got like gold earrings on, and you're talking about killing ducks you're you're saying exactly the same thing mm-hmm. that like good old boy friends of mine in Arkansas would say that they're walking through you know now stylistically, they'd be different, and they sure. talk about like jada man, that looks ducky over there, man, yeah but you're saying the same thing because mm-hmm. you've both become these participants in these very human cycles of life and death. That's right. We're talking about it being violent. Yep. But, you know, birth is violent.
1: It absolutely is. And uh you know, I just feel like this is this is a part of my humanity that I that I want to participate in. Mm. And um And I, I, I see, you know, participation and I've always been consistent in that the work I do, you know, with Outdoor Afro is not ever going to recenter itself to be about, you know, hunting and angling. It's always going to be friendly, you know, especially from a conservation perspective. It's easy to do. Um,
0: Is it kind of like a, if someone's interested in it, is you kind of can point them towards some places absolutely where they
1: can do that? absolutely like we're not you know we're not this is not a uh, you know a multiple personality um exercise hmm. where you know if you're part of outdoor africa you can't be you no know, it's, it's like yeah like it's in our policy statement that we support hunting lawful hunting and fishing okay. it's always been there okay I've always talked about my dad and hunting and fishing and the meaning it's had in my life. It's never, it's not been a new story. What's new is my practice. And I'll tell you this weekend was so much more than the Black Heritage Hunt that was conceptualized out of my own um, renewal as a hunter and and needing to have a lot of mentorship, you know, there's not a, it's, you can't walk on, you know, as a hunter. Yeah, it's hard in California, especially where we've got regulations today that didn't even exist when my dad was hunting.
0: Yeah, I was, I was, I was struck with, uh, you know, the rules around ammunition and mm-hmm. guns and all that. It, it's it's different than where I live for sure.
1: Absolutely, and so there was a lot that I had to um, learn and. Then once you learn, how do you find a community of practice? And because I I do what I do for a living, I understand the power of finding your community, finding your people, um, and how effective it is. You know, so naturally I turned to um, a group that I'd been eyeing for some years and had a couple of false starts with, and then finally landed um, in connection with Holly Heiser who has been an educator in the new adult hunter space, specifically as it relates to women. And so she had a she lot. She works for Cal
0: Waterfowl. Of, yeah.
1: So she she also worked for California Waterfowl Association, who had been sponsoring a program called Becoming an Outdoors Woman um, for some time. And so I had actually found out about California Waterfowl and of course Holly through becoming an outdoors woman. And I saw their videos. I was like, oh my gosh, this looks so amazing. All the things they get to do. And, and I really saw myself as an outdoors woman, but un, not fully realized. And, you know, my dad had long passed away. Uncles all gone. And there really wasn't a community of practice in my family anymore. And there hadn't been in a long time. And now I understand why, because, you know, hunting is a lot of work, you know. And, and the hunting my dad did, he did with his brothers. They'd all go out. You know, it was a big family affair when we would harvest animals. Everybody had a part to play. And um, and so by the time I kind of lost interest in going to the ranch in my teens, you know, it was right around the time when their health you know, started to really decline. And they, they were even more advanced in age. So I, I wanted to get back into it. And so finding finding this group led me to Holly, she'd done a YouTube video on how to hunt doves. And it's as a great, you know, way to get, you know, into hunting. And I reached out to her. And we had a great conversation. She'd recently heard me on another podcast, and she'd meant to connect with me anyway. And we just hit it off from the beginning. And we we didn't, you know, sometimes people like this weekend are assigned a mentor, okay? So you, so you come in, participant, and this is your mentor. It didn't happen that way with us. It was more like the way it works when you fall in love with somebody, okay? Where you just like, you're hanging out and then you're like, oh my God, I like you. I like you too, you know? And then it just kind of goes from there. And yeah. that's kind of how- Y'all
0: became it, friends.
1: Yeah, it, it just, it just- But no, it was more than friendship because, you know, I have lots of friends, but there's a special kind of person that you trust to have around you with a firearm and Mm -hmm. killing things. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Not all, not all people can, I will do that with. So to get to that level of intimacy with someone takes a lot of trust. You know, it takes a lot of, you know, um, humility, um, and and, and, and a willingness to be led, you know? So, so she and I, we started hunting and in this very location where we are at this club is where I shot and doubled on on the first up. And you know, I, it was all a blur. Okay. There was just, you know, just everywhere dropping, you know, from the sky. And I was like, Oh, you know, and, and super excited. And, you know, and we hugged, you know, and I was just like, I love you. She was like, I love you too. It was just like, it's, I mean, you know, it's killing is intimate. So here's this intersection of like, you know, of, you know, this, intensity that you just killed something that gave way to also this incredible love and belonging and and that's that that really um accelerated my my hunting journey and granted because of what i do for a living because i have you know a really um expanded network now through holly um I've had a chance to do a lot of hunting
0: since then yeah you've got you've got fantastic access yeah
1: yeah it's privileged for sure and I it's it, it it's basically you know kind of put me on I'd say an accelerator course of you know hunting where some people take years to do some of the things that I've done and successfully um I've been able to you know just crash course it in some ways. But the thing that she and I both recognized in our journey was how much people needed mentorship, especially black people as it relates to hunting. And it was really great to be in the conversation um, on our first night where, yeah, we had the safety talk from the, the staff of this facility and we talked about gun safety um but for for people to talk about how they associate guns with violence on bodies, okay like we we we're in California, the home of the drive by yeah um my own brother was murdered by a firearm. I have any number of people I could talk to, and I bet you at least a quarter to half of them know someone who's been affected by senseless gun violence in urban and sometimes suburban situations. So I had realized when I started my hunting journey that I had had more at this time in my life, I'd had more of those influences that were affecting my um attitudes and kind of fears and perceptions around firearms and and guns than i had in my formative years and so it took of course getting gun in your hand you know um realizing how challenging and technical it is to actually shoot successfully um, and all the practice that you need and how regulated it is and where you can go. And where you, I mean, there's so much about it that just helped me, to, you know, feel <clears throat> less of those fears and concerns um, over, over this time. But I'll tell you, when I was in that refuge for the very first time and it was shoot time, I jumped. Yeah. I jumped a few times because I... I you know, when, when you're hearing gunfire, <clears throat> living in a city,
0: you hit yeah. the floor. Get in the bathtub, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, I don't feel that now. Now now when I hear gunfire, I'm like, Oh, let me look over there and see if something gonna flush my way.
0: <laughs> well, it depends on the situation. If you're out here, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, I have but but see I have other inputs now mm, that mm. are not you know, only about, you know, the violence I see on TV or the violence I might experience in my family or in my community. You know, I have more diverse inputs as it relates to firearms and killing um, than, you know, just wanton and reckless violence against humans.
0: Yeah. And so you put together this hunt. I think there was four new... Mm-hmm. Hunters.
1: Yep, and 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 Patrick, your friend.
0: Yeah, Patrick, who's hunted for longer than I have, and who's like an internet friend, and I talked to him on the phone a bunch, and that was a blast too, because me and him hunted together, and I
1: love that. That was so great.
0: And you know what was cool? We talked about today, and I think I already told you, but you know patrick is country and i love it
1: i love it too i mean he's
0: country i'm used to kind of being like the countryest black person around no he
1: he beat you oh
0: deep yeah and we loved every bit of it i mean he had like a big chaw on his lip and
1: yeah like even we we took the group picture and he wasn't here when we Mm -hmm. took the group picture and he like comes back and and we're like yeah you missed the group picture and everything he was like yeah you know i I was out he was i was (laughs) out you know, like you
0: know, like yeah, he just went and did his thing. He just
1: and I love it. You know, and I and I never want to create a space where people feel like, oh my god, I got to be here at this time and that. I mean, we I like structure so that people know what to expect. But if you got to go and you know get your skull or whatever the heck, you know, I'm, I'm I'm nobody's mom. And so this weekend was really about taking the bits of what I learned from Outdoor Afro about what it means to welcome people and how it it really felt like Outdoor Afro 2012 to me this weekend because it was it was me and a few people going out on hikes Mm -hmm. and i would partner with you know um an outdoor educator you know partner with an audubon society and we would go i could show you pictures we would go on a bird walk in you know the the martin luther king jr shoreline um you know, beautiful, beautiful wetland area and go and do bird ID and, you know, and have a, have a a cookout or something like that. And so in those early days, that's what it looked like. It looked like a few people, you know, and, and we would be learning and bonding and, and we would have, you know, experts, you know, who were, you know, ornithologists, you know, come in and, and help us to learn uh, bird ID. And so like this weekend was like a flip of it. It was kind of like, you know, this is what that looked like, but it's obviously better resourced because yeah. I'm better resourced. Yeah. You know, back then I didn't have the relationships and staff and, you know. Yeah, this
0: place, this place is, I have no idea what it cost to buy. Multi, multi, multi millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It's got a helicopter pad on it. Mm-hmm. It's gnarly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. for... Black hunters had their first mm-hmm. duck hunts here.
1: Yeah, and and you know what? Because that's what that's what really any new hunter should feel entitled to have. You know, I get so annoyed when when it's time for black people to do something for ourselves for one another. It's like we got to talk about you know the cheap shit. We got to talk about the bargain basement. We got to talk about. Oh, Lord, you know, the low income communities of color, like somebody actually got at me on social media when they said the, when they saw the price, because this was not a free trip. Let's, yeah. let's, let's be clear. Everyone paid to be a participant. The volunteers were given swag. You know, we were you're blessed to have the resources to allocate, you know, swag as some form of thank you for the incredible time and commitment that these folks gave us. Um during a peak hunting season, Um, and, you know, the expectation, you know, was not to make money, but to really, it's very important that we demonstrate early that things cost. And I do, I would do a disservice to anybody if I, you know, made everything free, 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 free. And then they get out in the real world and no, that's a that's a twenty five hundred dollar hunt.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because that's that's what I mean. I've now hunted enough to see. Yeah, you can hunt public land, and thank goodness for it. But if you want to go to a club and get have a guide and get on a buck or an antelope or whatever, you know. And, yeah, it's and, four figures. And have 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 meals and overnight accommodations. That's not free, you know, and so um, but I did set the price point at what I felt was kind of, you know, it was accessible. This is a new new thing. okay. so I'm not trying to, you know, really, you know, stick it to people. But I I really wanted to make sure that we are valuating the experience appropriately and not making, you know, it be, you know, cheap or free. Because also I think people don't value it the same way either.
0: Well, this, this was not a charitable enterprise. No. This was an opportunity for some folks to try something new and admittedly difficult with some of the barriers to entry removed. Yes. And, yes. That's, and that's different. And, you know, we... we but we don't have,
1: see enough of that.
0: Well, and it's not... Well, you know what it is? It's infinitely more respectful because there's kind of an idea, and, you know, you see it a lot now. There's this idea, one of black being black people being presented with the outdoors as something that they have no relationship to or uh has not been theirs to begin with and then there's also this and even if it is well meaning it's still patronizing this idea that, that that black black american is analogous to impoverished
1: oh yeah that's i i have been boxing out of that corner from the very beginning of outdoor afro i remember when somebody introduced me one time they were like oh yeah rue does outdoor afro and 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 she's taking children from the hood and and i was like how where did you hear that like I, how, how did what where do you where is the, who's, who told you that <laughs> you know and it was just like but that's the you know and that that is that is like the mainstream environmental um, narrative. That's been, that's been the play. That's been the play. And that's why you have a conservation movement and environmental movement that looks the way it does is because they play to poor, they play to poor and not to the empowered
0: of communities. You're introducing this to people who have an ability an economic and, uh, social access, uh, ability yeah to replicate this experience and actually become hunters yeah you know it's like that whole idea of like taking kids from the hood on a camping trip like you know
1: it makes for great you know copy and you know and i know you know people but ultimately it's just super selfish you know Mm. it's just like yeah you you just you just you're, you're there for your ego you're there because it makes you feel good
0: kind of you missionary know? mindset it
1: is and and also you know it's a non-threatening population you know you don't want to deal with that child's daddy who's tatted up and might have just came out the pen yeah you know
0: yeah but she but
1: you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean really you know but that's where the child's going to go home to and that parent if they don't have the tools or the you know or awareness of what what their child's doing during a school day field trip or weekend overnight camp trip you know then then that's not going to be replicated back at home
0: and if they don't have a, if they don't have uh, a relationship with that activity then it's it's just a one-off thing
1: always and so that so i've really been um really been working hard there was a phase of my career where i was doing what i call field building where I was just going out and doing speaking engagements and just like shutting it down, shutting it down every time Q and a would always come the same questions. How can I get more black people and more black kids come to my program? I mean, it's just like, I call it thirsty for diversity, you know, (laughs) because it's just, it's, 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 it's meaningless, you know, without relationships. And for me, I have found so much happens when you get people together and they're able to build. So let's talk about what you said earlier. You were saying that, you know, what I'm sharing sounds a lot like people who stylistically appear different than I do and mm-hmm. who are sure. living in another part of the country. That's the that is become also uh, I wouldn't say prime like my my heritage connections, my connections to my dad. I'd say that's in the center. Um alongside the the humility that you get out of hunting where you're allowed to be a beginner again and again and again and again and again. You know, you get to a certain age and you're like kind of good at a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. okay? You're probably a good enough cook. You're probably good enough, you know, of whatever it is that you've been doing all this time. You're probably pretty good at it. But hunting was kind of this non sequitur and where I was like, whoop, I'm not good. So I can't come in... And know that if I study this test in a certain way that I'm going to get an A. You know, there's no linear quality in that way with hunting. There's, you know, all these all these lines um, that go in many directions about uh, that have to do with some of your ability and your equipment, the conditions, location and whatever the hell the animal's going to (laughs) do. So there's just so much so much. that has to all work together. To, to actually be executed as intended. And I have found that when I leave the state and I go to a place like Lander, Wyoming, Buffalo, Wyoming, um, Colby, Kansas, I'm adding new states to my places visited because of hunting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in those places, there, there are people there who don't look like me, not a one. Okay. Um, who probably wouldn't vote, you know, the same as I've traditionally voted, but I'll tell you, you know, when I was, um, so I shot my buck. My very first buck was eight pointer. I shot him after like on the third day after that's my sixth sit. And it was the last five minutes of shoot time. And I was 200 yards away and I shot him and he face planted. And then, then it was all, you know, chaos, you know, yeah. and, um, and very dark, you know, all of a sudden. And I'm walking with my guide, you know, who's about um, maybe early 30s. You know, and he led on enough for me to know that, you know, he and I had probably very different, you know, political sure, backgrounds. Sure. We, yeah. didn't, we, we didn't dig into it, you know, but it, it we weren't there to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: But, uh, you know, but we, we didn't, we couldn't find the deer, you know, from where we were. So he's glassing, glassing, but there's logs everywhere. It's dark, you know, chaos at just ensued. Is it like
0: a cutover or something?
1: It was a little forest, a little stand, okay. trees, um, uh in a on 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 a off in a ranch um land area private property so he didn't see it and he you know so we're walking he's glassing and then he stops and he turns to me and he's got this thousand megawatt smile and he hugs me and I start crying cuz he saw my he saw my buck on the ground finally mm. you know and that that moment we had, you know, made possible by hunting. Yeah. That would not have, what would have put us two together all that time. And to experience that moment, you know, of pure joy and bliss and success. And so.
0: Human connection.
1: And I, yes. God, we need more of that now. So here we are today in 2021 and everyone's just so trigger- happy, you know, to, you know, release their, um, outrage about everything. Okay. That's like the most accessible emotion right now Mm. I'm, I'm seeing in the world. And I've always been consistent that, that the work I do and that, that I will always do. It's a love story. Okay. Even when people try and like say things like, yeah, real, we need people like you fighting for our parks. I'm like, what are you? What the fuck are you talking about? Like, who's fighting for parks? Like, it's just such a like, like this. We love parks. <laughs> we love them. We we do we do this because we love it. Like, let's make that love of what we do be the first thing we think about versus the fight or the who we gotta hate in order to keep what we got. You know. So in this binary time we find ourselves in, I am so thankful to be a part of the hunting community that has embraced me and has, um, you know, I can be in a room and I can tell if I'm experiencing being different, <clears throat> right? Like, cause I'm different. I'm from California. There's a lot of things about me that are different, mm-hmm. you know? And and being different, being a black woman, right? Being a black woman hunter, okay. There's some natural curiosity that goes with that. I, I sure big big margin of understanding for that. But feeling racism assigned to me has not come up where I feel like you know I sit down and people get up and walk out or walk change their their you know their seat yeah. or you know or go quiet. When I come in into- a <laughs> you know, I've and I've and I've and it's really interesting. I've probably experienced more of that here in California than I have <coughs> in these when the many experiences I've had being in the South, visiting the South. Um, but in particular, in the hunting um, world, that I find myself in because of the specificity of the focus and how people really can we can rally around, you know, this common interest that we want to protect and we want to um keep doing and and keep enjoying um you know not just the sport of it but you know all the through line all the way to the table, you know. And so I feel like this weekend for me was a showcase of what's possible. Mm. Because even though we're the Black Heritage Hunt, you know, and Outdoor Afro is Outdoor Afro. I'm glad you're saying this. Okay. Um, You know, affinity groups are important. I love affinity groups. I think it's important for there to be affinity groups. Sometimes when I see an all-white male thing, I'm like, go on over there and be all-white male. Go on. (laughs) You know, I don't need to be a part of it. You know, or, you know, you're a Black sorority, (coughs) of which I'm a part. It's great. I love it when you find your people, you know, there's, there's something really, you know, great to to connect. But I think what happens too often is that it tips into, um, radicalism Mm. and, and, and then once that happens, then, then it becomes something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been very careful to, you know, be, be specific but not exclusive so that we can talk unapologetically about, you know, why we love the outdoors, why we're focused on the black culture and heritage in the outdoors, but it's not exclusive. And I find that that specificity has actually made us more accessible and universal to people because they can locate us on a map, you know? And, and what I find to your point is that people find, often more that they have in common than what it it, what is different and in the example of someone like Holly my mentor who co-hosted this weekend with me when you are that specific and you and you're showing up you know with with love you know it actually attracts people to want to support it yeah and so we'll find you know even though we're do we do what we do and we know who we're doing it for, we get the kind of support from we get support from everybody who just i mean, I was at my board meeting, and it was just so beautiful, like hearing these white men and women, you know we have a very diverse board um talking about black joy, you know. <laughs> yeah and And how and how it's like yeah and then this is you know and i was just like yes more of this well and
0: it it not being like a threatening concept so like this this hunt there's like i don't know there's like 14 people here uh there were men It, it was actually one of the more truthfully diverse uh Enterprises I've been on, so there were. Well, thank you. N- That's a compliment. I mean, no, it was impressive, and it, and it, but it was done. It was completely authentic, right? Mm-hmm. So there weren't boxes being filled. It was just the people that came together, and you had uh, black people, and you had white people, and you had people of mixed heritage, and you had people that you know might be uh, initially recognized as Asian or Latino. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was when. I can, I'll speak and for you myself. and you
1: had and you had people who were in all the different roles as experts, mm-hmm. as helpers, yes. as um, you know, uh, yeah, leaders. I mean, there was, so it wasn't just like because yeah. oftentimes too, like the diverse events still has like
0: leadership. There's like a power structure thing kind of in place, and yeah, this was this was very different. Like the two most experienced hunters on this trip were both black men right yep. and then the probably the next most experienced hunters were all women yep or no okay andre's been hunting for a long time yes, too yeah andre yeah yeah okay. so yeah
1: so three yeah
0: yeah so the most experienced hunters were black men and then right after that were all women that's right you had ha- at least half of the mentors mentors were women that's right right and you had i mean there was one like one specific thing you had a uh, v and abu you know so you have a Six and a half foot tall black firefighter. male firefighter being led by like a five foot tall, you know, Asian American woman mm-hmm. who is like, I, Oh man, it's it's rad, it's it's really, really we're gonna rad. be
1: unpacking this trip for a minute, just so you, I mean, and and uh, people should know like we just came in hot from this, like we just ended this event like an hour ago, okay, yeah, so we we. I know we're going to like get on a phone call and like talk. There's going to be little like snippets of it, you know, and I'm going to be living it through my fiance because he was one of the.
0: Yeah. He killed his first yeah. ducks this time. Yeah. yeah.
1: And he's been so supportive of me this whole time. And he has, I mean, he's even gone on hunts with me and sat in the car, you know, yeah. and waited for me at the refuge.
0: And he's being, and he's being led into this by you. Yeah. There is, you know what? Honestly, there's too much to go into of this. I just I want to say to this point that I think what you establish here and I, I like this, this journey we've gone this conversation because I think, you know, if we're if I'm kind of like putting a summation on it, we've talked a lot about basically you being multifaceted. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this conversation allowed you to be that. Right. And mm-hmm. and it was uh, I think it's a good demonstration of some of the stuff that I like so much about you. And I respond to so much about you. And I would kind of wrap it up on saying that this weekend, because of just the actual authentic diversity in it, it communicates a a sense of, it's just kind of okay to be yourself. And so you had a whole bunch of people from very disparate places with different ideas about stuff and different levels of experience and comfort and all of that. And everyone was, you know, there's people having their own reckonings with stuff. Yeah. It was, and you know, I I say this a lot too. Like I, I don't like for, I don't like for stuff to be precious. Right. Mm -hmm. But so there is room for people that might subscribe to what I might classifies a little bit more precious or just just comfort being comfortable with their kind of emotions Mm -hmm. and then there was space for you know the the fun of some people that had hunted other places Mm -hmm. getting to see something really cool and a different way of doing it and nobody's experience stepped on or belittled or got in the way of anybody else's experience which is yeah, dude, there's a lot of stuff that in a microcosm kind of way could really be applied uh, in a much broader sense to kind of all of our lives that would, I think, result in just everyone being able to take a breath. Yeah. You know, because shit is so tense right now and probably is going to continue to be. Yeah. But, uh Real quick, if people wanted to find you, and please plug your book, because I know you have a book coming
1: yes. out. Yes. 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 Um, so find me at Room Map uh, on Instagram. And in, in particular, related to hunting, you can find me on the Black Heritage Hunt. And there's also a website, blackheritagehunt.com. And I have a book coming out. Um, that I'm so thankful you'll be a part of. You, I was just reading your passage the other day. Yeah, I wrote um, a little essay for it. Yeah. So you're one of about 35 voices um, who all together um, are continuing this conversation, you know, about how you can show up in your love for being who you are, but also, uh, in, but also with nature. And the book is called Nature Swagger, a celebration of Black joy um in nature and it's 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 really lovely it's it's you know got um you know five different essays from me that introduce you know every section and um and each section is is a call out of the spirit of of you know the the body of writers that that follow and i'm just really happy it's gonna be um published by chronicle books And if you're familiar with Chronicle, they make beautiful books. And so it's going to be just gorgeous. So it's going to have, you know, just heavy visual um, representation and imagery that will hopefully inspire people in the same way that Outdoor Afro has inspired people in the same way that this weekend um, the black heritage hunt weekend, it will inspire people. It will be, a th- there'll be a, there's the through line, um, leading to this book and, uh, and my gift to the world.
0: Uh, I have nothing to add to that. I, I want Rue to uh, I speak hitch for this, herself. I
1: got to hitch this RV and get on down the road. It's yeah. been a long day for both
0: of us. I know Yep, yep. I got to do some little, little bit more stuff and then head back to Arkansas in the morning. Uh, oh,
1: wow. You leave in the morning. Yeah. holy crap that's right cause you have this event coming up
0: yeah i, do. I gotta get back at the, seat in the middle of my season um ruth thanks a whole bunch thanks well, for thank having you for,
1: me th- thank you <laughs> thank you for for having me in the middle of your season especially so i well, hope it was worth it it, and was, and, um, man, it was
0: gnarly I had, I had a rad time man it really was really cool you got me all the way over to california which five years ago i said i'd never come here and <laughs> i had a blast so thanks a bunch Ru. all right
1: thank you bye bye
0: Hey, we've reached the end. Thank you so much for sticking with me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly enjoyed recording it, and I'm stoked to be able to bring it to you. As always, this podcast is produced by Jonathan Wilkins and Brian Sachs. The title track, Music, is by Dr. Bionic out of Cincinnati, Ohio. You can keep up with me on Instagram. Uh, That's where I'm most active on social media, and that's just blackduckrevival.com. We'll also be releasing hunt dates for next season, as well as starting to take bookings for fishing trips here in about a month and a half or so into February, beginning of March. So if you'd like to know about that before it gets released on social media, you can keep track of me at blackduckrevival.com. Also, that's a great way to access some of the articles I've been writing and publishing in print and over the internet ether waves. And if you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to help out, please feel free to like, subscribe, leave a review, all that stuff at all the normal places where you get your podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.